Hello and welcome to American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Foster Brown. In the spring 2012 edition of American Road Magazine, our National Road column features a story that I wrote about the Indianapolis Speedway. In part two of that series on the Indianapolis Speedway, Donald Davidson, the track historian, talks about the curious links between promoter Carl Fisher, the Speedway, and Miami Beach, and the birth of the National Road. But Don is most excited when he describes his realm, the magnificent Indianapolis Speedway Museum. Part two of our interview with Donald Davidson is brought to you by the Heritage Tractor Adventure, coming June the 11th to the 15th along the I&M Canal Heritage Corridor. For more information, visit heritagetractortour.com. Illinois, mile after magnificent mile. Talking with Donald Davidson, who is the uh, historian here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, Donald, uh, I understand that it was not only a vision that Carl Fisher had for uh, creating an environment in which you could test and push the cars to limit this newfangled thing called a car, uh, but he also, because of testing the cars and pushing them, had a vision for the highways that they were on as well. He did. Uh, He thought, wouldn't it be great if you could drive an automobile from one coast to the other, which you could do in those days, but not without a great deal of difficulty. You'd have to drive through rivers and across plowed fields and everything. And so he headed up a group, uh, the Lincoln Highway Commission, to build the first transcontinental highway. And I think the beginnings of that were uh, a dinner in 1912, and then they started raising funds in 1913. So uh, the Lincoln Highway was headed up by him, also the Dixie Highway, which goes, I think, from Connecticut down to Miami. And uh, the reason for that was that he's the man who developed Miami Beach. It wasn't his idea, but he took it and developed Miami Beach from the swamplands into the resort area. A man with incredible vision, Carl Fisher. Was he involved with the Speedway itself, and was he one of the founders? That- yes, it was his idea. He he was the uh, – there, there were four partners, and uh, he and Jim Allison – were the two principals, and Jim Allison was the man who uh, shortly thereafter uh, began Allison Engineering. At the time the track was open, there was no such thing, but uh, a couple of companies uh, transformed into Allison Engineering, which started in a building which we could almost see from where we are right here. It's about half a mile over there. Now, the Lincoln Highway itself, I understand, passes not too far from Indianapolis. Am I right? Uh, It goes north. It's the National Highway 40, goes through Indianapolis. That's Washington Street downtown. Uh, The Lincoln Highway goes across northern Indiana, and uh, it goes through South Bend, I think, and then sort of south of Chicago. But certainly, I would say by mid-1920s, you could get into a car in New York or Washington, D.C., and uh, drive it to San Francisco or Los Angeles. There, I think there's a wonderful uh, uh, National Highway Association in Indiana and many of the other states, along with Lincoln Highway Associations, who probably have much better uh, information about that. But the key thing is that Carl Fisher had that vision for a transcontinental highway and was involved in getting it going. Uh, maybe let's talk a little bit then about the the development of cars and the impact that that had on the roads that they were on. Well, very quickly, I mean, he got the point across about the fact that uh, how come you're not spending any money on roads? And uh, because 
Illinois and, and Pennsylvania, you know, were among the states that were, were well ahead of Indiana. So shortly after the track was off and running, then uh, the development of roads took place. But when they laid the track down, the original surface was crushed rock and tar, which is a you know terrible surface, all kinds of trials and tribulations there. So in the fall of 1909, they put down a bed of sand and 3,200,000 paving bricks street paving bricks that weighed about nine and a half pounds apiece. So that's why the track is, you, the, the nickname the Brickyard keeps coming up. Well, the, the surface of the track for many, many years was bricks and mortar, the entire two and a half miles. And, and to this day, people say, well, whatever happened to those bricks? Well, they're still there, but you can't see them. And uh, there's uh, about 85% of the way around the track, uh, the, the bricks and the crushed rock are still there with several layers of asphalt on top of them. And, and you know, the other 15% is whenever they put in a tunnel. So there's six tunnels that go underneath the track now. I think that uh, it's very possible, just a theory, that when they put down that crushed rock and tar in 09, that may have been the first paving job ever done in the state. I mean, maybe not, but uh, it, it just occurred to me that that may have been so. Now, I understand that there is still one place that you can see the original bricks, am I right, of, of, for the uh, original bricks in the yard? Well, at the start-finish line, there's a strip. They are original bricks, but they, but um, they what they do, obviously, the, the, the track is, I tell people it's about two and a half feet further above sea level, the surface, than it was when they started. So are they the original bricks? They are of the same type because uh, they put the layer of asphalt down and then uh, let it let the uh, the surface uh, settle and then they'll gouge out a trough and then lay in new bricks that are culver blocks from Vetersburg, Indiana which is about Oh, about 10 miles from Danville, Illinois. Now, let's talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, the museum that's here and let people know about what they can see when they come here and uh, the, the kind of history that they can enjoy. Well, uh, the, the, this building went up in 1976, and it's actually the second museum. The first one went up in 1956. So it's very possibly that was the first museum to display racing cars, certainly at a racetrack. And uh, very quickly they realized they didn't build a build in a, a big enough. So um, then in 1976, this building went up. And uh, the display has changed a number of times. Uh, most recently, there was an attempt because 2011 was the 100th anniversary of the first running of the 500. It wasn't the 100th running. That will come in 2016 because they were down for World War One and Two. But there was an attempt to get as many winning cars as they possibly could. Normally, the displays, it's a very diversified collection. Normally, there's a lot of passenger cars, motorcycles, and so on and so forth. Well, for uh, a few months here, Virtually everything that you saw was an Indianapolis 500 winner. The track owns 31, and the others came from private collectors. So we had about 70 winning cars here. Well, they've all gone back. And so as we speak, now there's a, a new display going in, and people would be very surprised to see Craig Breedlove's Spirit of America Sonic 1, which uh, broke the, the world land speed record in 1965. This is the four-wheel version, the first car to do 600 miles an hour. And it's huge, and it's been in storage for a while, and I've been asking for years, wouldn't it be great if we could get that car out and put it on display? Yes, but we're going to have to take four cars off in order to get it in. Well, it's there right now, 
and uh, in fact, I'm tells out of school. It doesn't even have a signboard, and I'm working on that right now. So uh, you know, by the time this airs, so uh, hopefully we'll have a sign up so you can see what that car is. <laughs> we we're talking with Donald Davison, who is the historian here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's Hall of Fame. For you, uh, a favorite memory of your years here at the uh, at the speedway, and I know that's like naming your favorite child is difficult. I've had hundreds and hundreds of pinch me moments with people that I've met from all different walks of life uh, that you know have nothing to do with motor racing but I suppose the topper would be um, the day that I walked into the track when I I came in 1964 as a visitor and uh, just walked into the place and uh, you know, everything that I dreamed about was here. <laughs> That's wonderful. Let's talk then, just if we could cast our eyes towards the future as a historian. Tony appreciates where it's been. We talked about the impact that the Speedway had on cars and on roads, really, from its inception. Um, what is the impact that the Speedway is having now on automobiles and uh, the, our whole use of cars? That's a pretty hard question to answer, and I don't ver- do very well as a historian. I tell people I just happily live in the past and look at black and white photographs. And it's it's a huge sporting event, and we think and and you know this sounds like PR talking here, but uh, it's probably the best known automobile race in the world, and uh, that's based on talking for years and years and years to overseas visitors, journalists from all over the world, and and they pretty much um, the the, uh, the the three biggies are the twenty four hours of Le Mans or Monaco Grand Prix. And the Indianapolis 500, maybe the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, but it's certainly right up there. There are, is it a proving ground? Well, in a way, yes. Uh, there's a lot of equipment that has been perfected here. But I think that, that um, what happened in the, in the early days was that the, uh, the interest transferred from the automobile makes to the drivers. In the first few years, the drivers weren't the stars, but by the time you get into the 1920s, then from that point on to this date, and uh, manufacturers wouldn't want to hear this necessarily, but I think most of the people that sit in the grandstands at the Indianapolis Speedway, they know the drivers, but they don't necessarily know what they're driving. One of the things that struck me about this from my little background, uh, understanding something about the Formula One drivers, is that the drivers, whatever the class of car they're driving in, are remarkable athletes. They're not just sitting behind uh, uh, the wheel of a vehicle steering. They, they are just extraordinary athletes themselves. They are indeed, and and uh, n- not that the drivers of the early days used to work out, but now they do, and uh, you know some of them have had traveling nutritionists and everything, and uh, this just came up just recently. There's um, an IU, it's not the IU School of Medicine, but very from very close we from where we are. Uh, there's the IUPUI campus in Indiana University. There's a lot of presence right here in Indianapolis. And there are several drivers that go down there to work out and be tested and so on and so forth. And there's a driver named Tony Canan, who's a Brazilian. And um, one of these uh, trainers recently said that Tony Canan was the finest human specimen that he'd ever seen, ever, of any any type of athlete. They're remarkable athletes, and, and so are the vehicles that they drive, remarkable specimens as well. Donald, I want to thank you very much for a generous time that you've uh, given us here. And, folks, uh, if you were ever anywhere near Indianapolis, uh, the uh, visit to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is a must, and to the Hall of Fame. Donald, thank you again so much for a very generous interview. Thank you very much. My pleasure. If you enjoy these podcasts, then you'll love the digital edition of our magazine. Go to AmericanRoadMagazine.com and click on the Preview Our Magazine icon. 
You'll get a sample of the digital layout and the opportunity to sign up for electronic delivery of our next issues. While you're on the homepage, check out our blogs, trip suggestions, special deals, sweepstakes, and so much more. You can even friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Till we meet again on the American Road for another Trip Talk, this is your host, Foster Brown, reminding you that the joy is in the journey.